and welcome to the Community Serverless Podcast. Uh, I'm Cassandra Perch. I work for IOPipe as a developer relations engineer. And today I have Ben and Sebastian with me. And uh, I'll let them introduce themselves before I introduce the topic. Uh, ben, why don't you start? I'm Ben Kehoe. I'm a cloud robotics research scientist at iRobot and an AWS community hero. All right, and Sebastian? Cool, thanks, Cass. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, Ben, and my name is Sebastian Guesgen. I'm the Senior Director of Cloud Technologies at Bitnami. I, I take care of everything Kubernetes related at Bitnami. Awesome. So the topic uh, today kind of started a, a, with a Twitter uh, discussion uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, what it was about was basically creating your own serverless platform versus using an existing serverless platform. Um, so Sebastian works on Kubeless and uh, Ben is an AWS hero. So uh, basically they're going to discuss the pros and cons of both. So I'm going to let them get started. Ben, you want to go or? No, I think, I think you should start by uh, talking about what Kubeless is and what it does. Okay, cool. Uh, so first, you know, I, th I think we are all here to to advance uh, technology and uh, and find solutions to problem for businesses. Okay, we're not we're not here to to have fights and uh, you know religion uh, discussion about uh, this tech is better than another or things like this. So I think we are all in agreement here. Uh, so Kubeless is a, we call it a serverless solution, and it's something that you deploy in a Kubernetes cluster uh, on-premise, or potentially it could be a Kubernetes cluster in the cloud, and we can discuss the, the different uh, variants. But basically, it's meant to be a clone of AWS Lambda that people who are not on AWS and people who don't want to use Lambda uh, are able to use to benefit from the paradigm of serverless computing, quote. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's that's the main idea. I've been doing virtualization for a long time. I was I was there when AWS released S3 and EC2, and I have ton of respect for AWS. They are super innovative. They do lots of things, uh, lots of things that are terrific. Lambda is definitely, you know, new paradigm, couple years old, that's uh, that's really uh, picking up. And I think that people who are not on AWS and or people who don't want to embrace Lambda, you know, should be able to to leverage and, and benefit from that paradigm. So Kubeless is an attempt at, at providing, you know, those uh, those serverless features to, to those people. Yeah, I think um that uh, when I talk about this, the, the terms that I've been using uh, is sort of self-hosted fast as a term for everything where there isn't a provider managing everything for you and you're just uploading code. And that covers, you know, all the way from, you know, taking Kubeless as an example, right, from an on-premise Kubernetes deployment running Kubeless to you know, running Kubernetes on EC2 um, and then Kubeless on that to say like the Google Container Engine, which is managed Kubernetes and then deploying Kubeless on that. In in my mind, um, from the sort of serverless perspective, those are all self-hosted because the, um, 
you own the deployment of the fast software as well as the functions that you're deploying on top of that and i think um your point that right not everybody is is at the same point in their cloud journey that there are people who are still on-prem and they should be able to take advantage of serverless architectures um, is completely valid. I think that that's important. It helps people get in that mindset of, you know, it can help enable event-driven computing. Um, it can help reduce the friction of, uh, um, of developers, you know, starting to use a given system because they can just write small amounts of code and deploy it. Um, it may increase their speed of iteration. But I think, uh, you know, when we look at the big picture and what we think the end goal is um, and what we think, you know, there are multiple facets, I think, to what serverless is trying to achieve. And one is, you know, sort of reducing the amount of code you're deploying, reducing the units of deployment um, and making things a little more distributed. But in my mind, all of that is really about how much can you avoid owning? Yeah. And um, so in the in the end goal, right, in sort of the ideal, um, owning the software that's running your functions is um, a step before sort of serverless native. Um, that yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with this. Uh, you know, I mean, if if you're using something like Kubeless, definitely you still own the infrastructure. Um, so you're gonna have a team of operators, sysadmin, that own that infra, needs to take care of it, needs to make sure it's always up. So the the users of uh, of Kubeless, you know, these these people, they may they may be you know really serverless because they're not going to they're not the ones maintaining the infrastructure. Okay, so you got yeah. those those two different personas of users of the system and, and operators. But at the at, you know at the end of the at the end of the day, as if you're on prem, the organization running that infrastructure is paying the cost of the entire infrastructure, and they have to manage that entire infrastructure. So definitely, it's still there. And in that sense, you know, if you're on-prem or if you're if you are self-hosted, as uh, as you say, uh, you know, it's not pure serverless. So I think I think we we agree there. And and also, you know, one one thing I'd like to 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 bounce off is that you know, names are names are super difficult, and then people tend to fight around you know what it means and and so on. Yep. And, and for me, the reason why we started down the, the, the road of Kubeless is really to, to be able to, to start thinking about those applications. So the problematics that you guys are, are facing at iRobotics, you know, why, why do you use something like serverless? Why, why do you think that you know, it's super easy for you to innovate really quickly and, 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 and go extremely fast? So uh, you know, I, I'd like the, uh, the, the debate to be about, you know, what are we trying to do with serverless from an application standpoint and application architecture rather than saying, well, okay, you're not really serverless because you still have hardware, you know, you're still managing hardware. <laughs> well, I think um, the, the main question that I get into in how are we taking advantage of, uh, of serverless is how can we reduce the number of things that we own? 
right? So e even if, um, say, we want to, you know, for whatever reason, our business logic code, which lives in the functions, we want that to be running on infrastructure that we own more. We don't want to farm that out. But we're, you know, using, uh, you know, MongoDB, and we're deploying that on Kubernetes. And my question is always, you know, can't that be database as a service? Like, why do we need to, why do we need to own that? Um, can't we just start flushing all of these pieces out um, one piece at a time? And, you know, maybe the answer is in some of these larger organizations, these organizations that are sort of maturely using Kubernetes, you know, at a certain scale, right? On-prem, like, loses meaning because, you know, uh, as was pointed out on Twitter by Adrian Cockroft, like, Amazon owns AWS's data centers. Um, so if Amazon retail is using Lambda, is that on-prem? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, right? Like, uh, that's serverless because there's enough separation there that, uh, you know, the users of the service aren't involved in any of the operations, any of that overhead. And so I think, you know, if you have that enough of that split that you talked about, right, where the operations of the cluster and the software and everything is owned far enough away that the developers who are deploying functions don't have to think about it, then you have achieved that serverlessness. Um, do you see that happening in organizations? Do you see that happening not just for compute, but for databases, for queuing, for for uh, message passing, all of these things? Uh, so it, I, it, it, it's almost like uh, talking about the, the actual, um, I want to say penetration, but that's not the right word. It's the... Uh, you know how much how much people have embraced the cloud. You know how mm -hmm. how prominent is the use of cloud, and and we still see you know a lot of enterprises they are still on prem. They still have their own data centers. Um, so you know as much as you know I'm uh, more of a, a researcher and I think that ultimately everything will move to cloud, to AWS or to Google or to Azure. You know the big three. It's clear that they have. So much expertise in data centers, uh, uh, in running data centers, in optimizing the power, in the networking, and everything, that it's it's almost a waste to actually try to maintain your own uh, system. Um, so ultimately, I think everybody, you know, will move will move to cloud. But you still, you know, you still have a ton of enterprises that are on prem, and they do have to manage their own databases and their own messaging brokering system and, and things like this. So AWS definitely now gives you like a ton of services. You can build your entire infra with all the services that AWS provides. That those services, it's interesting because I think that those services used to be kind of cutting edge. And then AWS has almost, you know, started to, to be a little bit boring with services like you know Oracle database, you know, and and why why do they provide you know managed Oracle databases? Because the enterprise is asking for that type of uh, of service. Um, so they you know they they provide boring bits that you know are trying to help enterprises move to the cloud 100%, and it's you know it's their it's their business, and 
And the, the, the key, I agree with you, is that once you start moving all those, you know, database as a service, archive as a service, messaging, machine learning as a service, you use all those services. Now, your problem from an application standpoint is to tie all those services together. And that's where Lambda comes into play. And I think that's why AWS has, has come up with, uh, with Lambda uh, to, to allow their users to, to build their applications leveraging their services. And maybe maybe we'll get into the uh, you know the lock-in the lock-in later uh, because there there is you know definitely a, a portion of this here, but but to get back to your question, I, I you know there's still a lot of people that are going to manage their own their own services uh, on-prem even even in Kubernetes. Uh, a lot of people that we see you know they they may they may have a Kubernetes cluster. Uh, but they, they still have a legacy Oracle database uh, in the data center, and they bring that in through a Kubernetes service. So they start building, you know, microservices that still use their Oracle database. So it's fully on-prem. Mm -hmm. So if you if you look at a, a system that's using Kubeless and using um, software that's deployed either on-prem or say say it's all inside Kubernetes, right? So um, Kubernetes is functioning as, you know, in some sense, the cloud that it's running on. Um, what do you think is the first thing that starts to move off of uh, Kubernetes and into a cloud provider? Uh, you know, if if somebody has their Kubernetes cluster deployed on EC2, they're using Kubeless, they've got sort of a serverless architecture set up. What is the, uh, what do you think is the gateway drug? To start the to, gateway to move into, you know, uh, the serverless native all services rather than software deployed on a cluster. Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a spectrum and it's a journey, right? Yeah. I don't think I don't think it's going to be all black and white. So you know, when when we answer those questions, you know, I want to make sure that you know people people get that we're talking about you know, uh, a, a spectrum and, and depending on the DNA of that company, of that organization, it may take a while and yeah. they, may, they may embrace certain services versus other due to, you know, lock-in worries or uh, compliance worries, you know, things, things like this. Uh, but definitely, you know, when you start building an application on Kubernetes, um, it's really strong, you know, you, the fact that you're using ephemeral containers, it's very strong for stateless, you know, type parts of your entire application. And, and you don't want to be managing your database, you, you know, you don't want to be a DB, a DB admin. So let's say you're on Google Cloud or you're on AWS, you know, you, you, you can actually start using, you know, that, uh, uh, those database uh, services. And I think that's the, that's the first thing. So you're going to start using RDS and then, uh, you know, maybe the uh, the redshift for archiving after that, and it's it's going to be all data and and persistency. You already see it with the the plugins in Kubernetes for data persistency, where you know you use EBS. So you you know you set up Kubernetes on you set up Kubernetes on on AWS, and of course all your persistent volumes are EBS. So you bring in your data through EBS, and and then you start using databases outside like this. So. Yeah. And, and through that through that journey, I can totally. There is a path, you know. I'm I'm an open I'm an open guy. There is definitely a path where, you know, instead of using your own messaging like the the Kafka that we bundle right now in Kubeless, 
you could actually using the uh, you know the the Kinesis stream from AWS. And mm -hmm. I, I, I strongly expect that within the next couple months, Kinesis is going to be a message uh, possibility, a messaging system mm. possibility inside Kubeless. And at some point, you know, if you're really going serverless native on AWS, there may be a point where you're like, wow, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be 100% Lambda. You know, I mean, yeah, there's, mm -hmm. there's this... How compatible, or Cass, did you have something? Yeah, actually. So uh, you, you were talking a little bit about um, you know, the, the gateway drug. I think, I think that's one of the benefits of having such a large plethora of serverless technologies is I think the gateway drug for a company is going to be whatever's closest to what they're already using, regardless of whether they're a startup or especially with enterprise. So let's say you've got a large enterprise company and they're already running a Kubernetes cluster and they're already putting the money into running a Kubernetes cluster. It seems like they'd be more likely to try kubeless for serverless something because they've already put all this money into that and and then trying you know serverless via that would either cost them less money or cost them less uh, headaches because they already have that. And, and we mentioned we talk a little bit about lock-in later, but this is like the good side of lock-in. Uh, for instance, if they're already using AWS as an enterprise company, you know, if they just made the move to the cloud and they're just starting to trust AWS, I, I could see them starting to trust Lambda pretty easily, especially from a cost perspective. So when you mentioned a gateway drug, I thought about like the idea of incremental change. And I think that's really what makes the uh, plethora of, of vendors such a great thing is because uh, even a large slow moving enterprise company can find a serverless offering usually fairly close to what they're already using. So. Yeah, I think I think lock in is a is a good topic um, because I think it's something that even you know I so my position on lock in is that for all but the very largest organizations. Uh, provider lock-in should not be, you know, on serverless should not be that big of a concern, um, primarily because, you know, the risk that you're going up against is uh, twofold, right? Is A, that you may be paying too much because you're beholden to a company, and B, um, that the company disappears and, you know, then you don't have any support. Um, for the first one, you know, the, the competition between providers, the move towards more uniform pricing, less enterprise agreements that, uh, that have custom pricing helps with that, right? That competition for new customers helps existing customers by bringing their costs down. Um, if you're going with one of the, you know, big cloud providers, Amazon's not going to disappear. Google's not going to disappear. Azure's not going to disappear, right? We don't have to... You shouldn't be worried about that, you, you know, within that, right, an availability zone or a region, you know, things like that, that you might be worried may go down or something. That's something that can happen, but the business as a whole is not going to just dry up. And then the cost that you do when you're, when you're looking at avoiding lock-in is when you look at, like, at the container VM level, it's pretty easy, right? A VM or especially a Docker container looks exactly the same on... Google Cloud as it does on AWS. Um, and so making it portable is more about, you know, are you taking on the complexity of monitoring two different systems? Because that's where it looks very different. Um, 
But when you start to go serverless and you start to take advantage of services that have particular features on a given cloud. So AWS has DynamoDB, it has these secondary indices that allow you to look up information in different ways. And if you move to um, Google's Cloud NoSQL or Azure's mm -hmm. DocumentDB, um, they don't have the same features or they're not, they don't work the same way. And so if I wanna make uh, my use of a NoSQL database cloud independent, I can't use those secondary indices. And so you end up with the lowest common denominator, which is not very good. Yep. Um, and so I think if you say, well, we're gonna accept lock-in, um, the risk that you're taking on is we're gonna wanna port later and, uh, and take on that cost of, well, I gotta rejigger all my systems so that you know, it works with these new databases and you know, reorder the arguments to the function because Lambda is event and context and every, Google is context and then event mm -hmm. uh, for no good reason. Uh, the, um, the other thing that I think will help with this is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation's uh, event interchange specification. So they're trying to get everybody on board with a very high level, lightweight wrapper for interchanging events between cloud providers. And at that point, if I'm running on AWS and I wanna use Google's machine learning, I have a way of transporting the information from one cloud to the other. And then I can sort of mix and match and then make those decisions based on how good is the service that I wanna use in a different cloud um, and is it worth paying the bandwidth cost when I go out? Um, and that would be great, especially because I think the answer is almost always going to be no. That when it comes down to it, the costs of doing intercloud and multi-cloud for the vast majority of organizations is not going to be worth it. But people are going to feel better. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 yeah. a. Sorry, it's a little bit like DR, you know, you, you need to have a, <laughs> a DR policy and, and hopefully you exercise that DR mechanism. And, yeah. and it's almost like, you know, you need to know that you have a way to get out of the lock-in and, and, and hopefully you exercise that mechanism to get out. Um, but, but you may actually not, you know, uh, move, move out of, of, of that cloud. That, but that's the, a great the, analogy. Yeah, but that that event system. I mean, that, so that's one of the big thing that's coming up of the of the CNCF serverless working group. To be fair, I haven't you know I've I was lurking. I've been lurking. I haven't I haven't paid you know I haven't been able to participate too much. But but definitely you know there's there's going to be a a standard for what's an event coming out coming out of that group. Also you know with the efforts from uh, from Austin Collins at serverless.com. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be something coming coming out there. Um, you know, we are monitoring Kubeless. We are monitoring this very uh, very carefully so that you know we can we can use that uh, that format. We can also uh, harmonize. You know, what's a context and what type of metadata you you stick in that in that context? Uh, because definitely, once that's uh, you know kind of like standardized, uh, you're totally right. Th those events should be able to flow. 
they should be able to flow from Kinesis to Cloud PubSub. And then you should be able to actually, you know, have a very hybrid setup where, you know, a Lambda can be can be triggered and then a Cloud Function can be triggered. Uh, you know, there shouldn't be uh, there shouldn't be any any I mean too many too much issues there. There's another bit that's going to help in the um, uh, with with cloud locking in the Kubernetes space. It's the the cloud the, the service broker API uh, coming from the, the the cloud foundry guys, and and definitely you know that's that's a way to basically expose cloud services from different cloud providers into a catalog and then have an abstraction for those services so that you can instantiate them into a you know, a more, uh, you know, standard way. And I think that, you know, the service broker uh, API and uh, availability plus the, the event standard, you know, technically, you know, lock-in shouldn't be too big of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think people will find that, oh yeah, if I just make it transparent as to where these services live, all of a sudden you get like giant costs on your bill and you're like, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. But but uh, you know, go, going back to AWS, I mean, definitely, you know, the the, the big thing is that since they have so many services, uh, when they when they started putting Lambda, uh, they were able to to use a lot of those services as uh, event uh, triggers uh, to to the functions, and that's not something you're going to get easily on uh, on Kubeless. That's that's the biggest yeah. biggest thing. HTTP triggers. You know, it's basically like a application server type, you know, type thing. That's easy. Uh, but we really want the event system. And in the event system, the big thing is the sources. And we want those those services. We want that that database, that that machine learning, you know, uh, uh, and whatever other services to be able to generate events. And that's the you know that's the biggest challenge for a non-prem solution. Do you see a role for Kubernetes to provide that, right? Like currently Kubernetes provides service discovery and other things that are available because Kubernetes needs them already. And so then it just makes it available to sort of the application layer. But do you think uh, there's a role for Kubernetes to play in being a providing a pervasive event layer to services that run on it? Yeah, there there is a role. Uh, it, it it could be. I don't see it going into the Kubernetes core, okay? okay. Because it's 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 outside of the yeah the core responsibility of Kubernetes. But the the thing that you know has amazed me with the the system with Kubernetes is that they've designed it from scratch to be extensible using those things that are called custom resource definition. They used to be called third-party resources. Uh, it's a way to basically extend the API server and, and get a, get an API endpoint with all the CRUD and the, the watch API uh, mm -hmm. in, in place automatically. So if you, if you want to extend Kubernetes, it's extremely easy. And, and, and somebody could actually come up with a an event layer uh, that that extends the the core Kubernetes. Uh, there is basic events coming out of the system, and you can use those events to you know to do certain actions. Uh, people do it for uh, uh, controllers. You know, let's That's, say yeah. Those events are Kubernetes control plane events. Yeah, 
Yeah, okay. Kubernetes control plane event. So, you know, that pod is going down, that pod went up, a service was created, this this deployment was scaled, you know, that that type of events. Um, so it's there. It's not it's not great, but it's there and we can use it in kubeless uh, to really do a lot of automation, you know, write functions that give you automation in the system. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't do a, an event bridge with, let's say, something like Minio object store, you know, event notification and things like this. So, so then who builds that event layer? To make uh, to make to enable kubeless or any other fast that that's you know well integrated into Kubernetes um, to enable it to really get the power of uh, these other ecosystems like Lambda. Maybe we do, you know, kubeless community or uh, Bitnami or you know the other companies that are that are joining us, uh, you know hopefully publicly within uh, the next couple of weeks, you know, maybe we should do another, another podcast. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, right now there, I think it's still early. The Lambda is in production, you know, the Google cloud functions are in production. People I mean, no, actually they're not GA. Are they GA? I mean, Google cloud is kind of perpetual beta. <laughs> you know, they, they sunsetted their, their machine learning API, which I think, the, the the original image processing API that they had, which I think really demonstrates uh, how Google thinks about its APIs. Because um, like if you're on AWS and you were you've got something that's built on SimpleDB, that runs. That still runs. Um, yeah. People use it. It's there. It's not going away. Um, Google is like, oh yeah, this thing we tried. Uh, we've got something better now. You need to move. Uh, do you think, so thinking about that pervasive event layer and how that builds an ecosystem, do you think that's a problem for, so there are other fast projects that aim to be uh, like independent of where they're running, you know, say not dependent on Kubernetes. Um, you know, I have less experience with, with you know, sort of all the issues involved in in building a self-hosted fast um, project. Do you think that would be more difficult to to have that pervasive event layer? If you're saying, yeah, I'll run on Kubernetes, I'll run on Docker Swarm, I'll run on, you know, some so, other right. container platform. And I think the, the you know where. What, what what this triggers in me is you know the the op more question about the open source community behind those um, those projects and the fact that the the long term sustain sustainability of an open source project is you know the community behind it but the companies also behind it that you know and companies because you know you you need to have companies that can actually pay developers to work on this you know full time. Um, so, so, you know, you have to look at, you have to look at, you know, what's, what's behind those, those companies. So Fission, you know, there's Platform9, Kubeless, they are currently Bitnami plus, you know, some other companies that, you know, hopefully will, will, will come on board. Uh, uh, 
but but that's what that's and what's gonna tell us the the sustainability of uh, of those projects. Now, you know, in terms of Kubernetes, uh, where I was getting at is that if you look at the other container orchestrator, it really you know I think it's pretty clear right now from a, you know business standpoint that Kubernetes has won the uh, orchestration uh, war. Uh, mm -hmm. All the all the data that you that you see from Gartner or other analysts, you know, tells you that 60 to 60 to 80% of people that, that are using an orchestration, they're using, uh, they're using Kubernetes or a variant like Tectonic or, or OpenShift. So things like, things like um, uh, Mesos, you know, with Marathon and things like Docker Swarm, uh, you know, are much uh, smaller. So I think a, a, a fast solution, you know, should definitely make sure it runs on Kubernetes. And, uh, and, and for us, that's been our choice. We are 100% Kubernetes. And to tell it to you, you know, <laughs> in, in no subtle way, we're not going to try to run on Swarm or Mesos. You know, for us, it's 100% Kube. So the, the discussion we are having about lock-in between cloud providers um, you're also making right now about um, container orchestrators. Uh, yeah, except that, except that Kubernetes is open source. Sure. Um, which means what in terms of container orchestrators? Which means that even if Google stops developing uh, Kubernetes, I can still run Kubernetes uh, on-prem. Right. Sure, sure. I'm not, I I'm just not, mean you're, you're choosing to lock yourself into a container orchestrator um, as opposed mm -hmm. to some of these other projects which are thinking, how do I make myself container orchestrator independent? Oh, I, I think there is a big difference there. I'm, I'm deciding to rely on an open source software yeah. versus, versus deciding to rely on a vendor providing services. That's, yeah. it's it's very different <laughs> I mean it is but um, one thought there is is if, if Google does stop deciding to develop on kubernetes it means it's gonna oh uh, yeah y'all can hear me but the audio feed can't let me turn yep. that up a little bit all right um, so if, if Google decides to stop tomorrow on on kubernetes development you have to admit while you can still run kubernetes on premise and you can still run kubernetes and it'll still be there the other platforms might start to advance past kubernetes in terms of features in terms of performance because it, it's if they especially if they still have the the company backing that they currently do with mesos having apache um you know things like that so while you're you're not relying directly on a company for services, you're you're relying on them to keep their uh, development muscle behind this tool, which I think is a is a less concerning uh, dependency than relying straight on a company. Uh, but I don't know if it's quite as big of a difference as um, directly relying on them. Because if, if Google stopped working on Kubernetes, that means all the engineers that are currently working on making Kubernetes better at Google are probably going to be moved to other projects. And that would affect the project, uh, it, it, at least in a small degree. Um, I, I, I don't know enough about Kubernetes to say how large of a degree, but it, I, I, I know it would affect at least a little. Uh, so that's so let's 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 uh, let let's tackle this from a risk perspective. Uh, what's what's the risk of Google and Red Hat 
stopping development on Kubernetes versus the risk of Docker Inc stopping development of Docker Swarm or the risk of Mesosphere stopping the development of Marathon. Right. Like, and, yeah, it, you know, it's definitely not high. Like I said, it's a much smaller risk than relying directly on the company services. Um, but I, I did want to point out that there is a small amount of risk um, because open source projects, they can come and go. I mean, the, like in terms of the developers that are working on them. So that is a thing. Uh, we've seen a little bit and, of it. And if you look... And if you look at Docker Swarm, if you look at Docker Swarm and you embrace the first Docker Swarm, uh, you know, suddenly Docker Inc. decided, hey, let's stop the first Docker Swarm and let's create a new swarm. So, you know, the, it, it, they basically abandoned the first project and created the sec a, a, a new one. But yeah, I, feel, you know, yeah. I, I was going to say, I feel like the, the risk is with open source projects is you know, that, that are backed by companies is less about uh, them stopping supporting it and more about forks that, yeah, that, yeah, that can fracture yeah, yeah. the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, tr that's true too. As a, as a but, you know, if we, if we go back to the, the, the serverless, uh, you know, a little bit uh, debate, you know, what, I think what we're seeing is that we're, we're seeing different, you know, FAS solution, uh, you know, come up, they have, they have pros, they have all pros and cons they, they rely on different uh you know let's call it let's call them backend systems but i think it's still it's still very early in the in the development um you know when when cass and i met at, at jeffconf in london it was pretty clear to me that 80 to 90 percent of people that use serverless right now that and they, they, it's real okay it's not it's not a it's not fake 80 to 90% of those people are on Lambda, on AWS Lambda. And then 80 to 90% of those people, you know, seem to be using the serverless framework. Okay. That, that was my impression. Mm -hmm. So, so the, 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 the on-prem solution, even like Kubeless, you know, I think they are still very early solution. It's going to change because there's going to be these event standards coming up, uh, AWS might come up, you know, uh, at reInvent with a, a Kubernetes managed service. How how much is that going to change the, you know, the the game? Because I'm sure that then you'll be able to, you know, somehow tie Lambda to, you know, to 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 things. So you know, all of this is is still very early and changing extremely fast. So you know, we have we have to uh, stay quick on our feet and uh, and keep pushing the keep pushing the tech forward. So I have a last question. Um, so suppose, take a year from now, with all the development, with all your roadmap you have for Cubulus, you got a three or four person startup asking you, you know, we could go with a cloud provider, you know, and their fast solution, all of their services, or we could put everything into uh, gaining Kubernetes experience, um, running kubeless and services on that what would you recommend to them a three a three or four people startup yeah greenfield yeah so first i would tell them to go with a managed kubernetes service in the cloud okay okay whether it's whether it's aws if they announce something or whether it's gke okay because i i do agree with you you know, uh, you don't want to own that stuff. 
<laughs> and and you want to you want to concentrate on your applications. That's what you want to do. You want to build your apps. So you don't want to be managing your infrastructure and taking care of your network and things like this. So if they want to go Kubernetes. Uh, because they still want you know some control on what's happening, and they may have different workloads that may not be uh, amenable to to Lambda. You know, I would tell them go with a managed Kubernetes uh, service, and then you know at that point we'll see what's the state of using cloud uh, cloud cloud provider function uh, services with a, a hybrid type of setup like this. Mm -hmm. But I, I truly expect that at that point, Kubeless will be in, in very good shape and, and we'll be able to also use those cloud services uh, uh, inside the, the managed Kubernetes uh, system. That's a, a good. I think that's a good uh, natural we'll stopping point. This was a, a really great conversation um, to to listen to. I, I I chimed in minimally because I was just enjoying hearing y'all discuss all the uh, intricacies. And uh, I'd like to thank you both, uh, Ben and Sebastian, for joining us today. And um, thank you both as well. Thank you. Thanks, Cass. Yep. And um, thank you, community, for listening. And uh, keep an eye out on the Serverless Community podcast. We're going to be having more regular episodes from here on out, I have a feeling. So uh, talk to you again soon.